Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast. We're your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. And before we get started, we just wanted to honor our listener of the week. We heard you. You actually know who you are and have asked to remain anonymous, but we wanted to share a message we got about the recent episode on educational inequality. And the quote I wanted to share with you and the reason this jumped out at us this week was that This person said, the one on the inequities of online teaching sure hit home. My husband is a literacy interventionist at a Title I school. We are five weeks into online teaching, and he is on the computer with family for hours until very late at night, still trying to get them online to get help and work. I'm talking one and a half hours to get a 10-minute lesson in. It breaks my heart every day. Wow. And so I wanted to appreciate this listener for circling back to us after that episode and giving us some real life examples of what's happening in the state of the education system right now, because the disparities are huge in this country. And if you're not in an area that has way fewer resources, you simply don't know what you don't know. So we're appreciating you, Anonymous, but you know who you are, listener of the week. And now I have to say by way of introduction to this episode that I am so glad that we had this conversation with Sue. So it's to me, it's like just the conversation we needed to have for our own mental health. I think I actually said this, that this is a conversation I didn't know I needed to have, but I absolutely had to have it, let alone get greater perspective about how our very diverse population is having to handle all these changes in this unprecedented time. If you're new to the show, this is Sarah. And I got to meet Dr. Sue Varma at the World Happiness Summit in Miami in 2019. Yes, the World Happiness Summit is a thing, and it is all about the science of happiness. And she was attending. I was co-emceeing the event. And we ended up having a great time hanging out outside of the summit. I mean, she even met my mom, Misasha. <laughs> so I know. I love that part. I love it. I appreciate Sue on a professional and personal level. And she has been on fire lately with her media appearances. She's been on the Today Show, CNBC, Dr. Oz, CBS. She interviewed Gail King the other day, or she was talking to Gail King just the other day. I mean, she is all over the place talking about the importance of mental health during these really challenging times. And... Plus, she was on, I don't know if I told you about this, the Lady Gaga special, and she was introduced by Kerry Washington to bring the mental health aspect into that televised, socially distanced fundraising musical event. So the point of this is to say we are so grateful that in between all of these really significant engagements, she took the time to chat with us here on the Dear White Women podcast. You can follow her on social media for all things mental health and wellness related at Dr. Sue Varma. And so check it out. Sue, I'm so excited that you're here with us. I guess I should call you Dr. Sue Varma. (laughs) You could call me Sue. I'm excited that we're doing this finally. Thank you. Thank you for trying and making this work. I'm so grateful. You are so busy right now. And so for you to squeeze some time out of your schedule for us means an awful lot. Would you start by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Yeah. So I'm a board certified psychiatrist and I'm on faculty at NYU Langone, a clinical assistant professor psychiatry there. And I'm a distinguished fellow of the American Psychiatric Association. I happen to be a mom. I happen to be Indian, Asian background. I was born in the United States, but my parents are originally from India. And, you know, I'm a psychiatrist, so I'm very interested in brain behavior, culture, and I'm fascinated by how all of what we're dealing with now, you know, really, we can't separate it from, you know, the cultural 
context. So it's interesting to see how this is affecting different segments of the population, sort of from ethnic minorities, socio-demographic, you know, how does that virus or pandemic make it very clear, you know, where we are and what ac- resources we have access to or what we don't. So as a psychiatrist, I'm fascinated by every aspect of people in the world and how everything is so related. Yes, absolutely. And I have so many questions that just jumped to mind, including like when you talked about the disparity in how this is affecting different populations, whether it's through socioeconomic or we, you know, the headlines are talking about how people of color are disproportionately affected mm-hmm. by this. You know, people are so busy right now. And especially if you're a parent, you are like crazy busy because now you have the children underfoot all day while you're still trying to do all the things you used to do. Mm-hmm. And so there has been a lot of conversation. You've been all over the media, which I'm so grateful for about mental health, you know, but people are kind of at that level where they're trying to do what's right for them. And yet our show, Dear White Women, focuses on narratives that aren't always the most common one. Mm-hmm. Right. We talk about race, identity, gender, ability, all of these things that you were mentioning before, too. Mm-hmm. And so with all that we're seeing in the media, you know, people's social media questions related to well-being, what are the things we might be missing right now? Who are the people that might be falling through the cracks whose needs aren't being widely addressed? You know, whose story is not being told? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And, you know, I just think of the who are the most vulnerable people in our population to begin with, and whether it be in terms of like wage earners, or elderly, or people who have a history of mental health issues to begin with. I mean, I kind of feel like, you know, sort of, it's always when in medicine or psychiatry, we talk about extremes of population. So the youngest of folks, and some of the older folks, and women, and people of color. And, you know, a lot of who we're seeing this sort of sicker population, I think, if I'm not mistaken, this specific statistic, and don't quote me because I want to check it again, but they were talking about like hospitalizations for coronavirus in Georgia. And like, I think 80% of them were people who are black. So that worries me. And when you think about essential workers, right, like who are the people who have to be on the front lines? And a lot of these are going to be sort of either hourly people, minority women, you know, so that concerns me. And the fact that social distancing, I remember seeing in an interview that I had done very early on, somebody was talking about social distancing and how painful it was. And I was like, oh my God, how lucky are you, right? To be able to have that because in certain parts of the world, I think it was in in Mumbai that we were talking about like there was like one toilet to 1400 people who were living in slums and things like running water when we have this luxury of even washing your hands for 20 seconds. And, you know, in some parts of the world, there is no running water. And so there, I saw a great video, I think it was UN Women or UN had done this about how to wash your hands with a bar of soap with no running water. So I just feel like we take so many things for granted, you know, and even myself, you know, I've spent time living in India. I mostly spent most of my life in the United States, but I lived in India as a kid for two years and I've traveled there, you know, every summer I work there as a medical student. And this idea of how we take so many things for granted, you know, being able to get an Amazon shipment. And, you know, the the biggest complaint from from one of my friends was, you know, why is it taking me two weeks to get an Amazon Prime? Like, I'm used to getting it in two days. And I can relate to that. But I can also relate to, like, what it was like not having running water, you know, or not having access to a toilet at a certain point. So, you know, I think having had exposure to different sort of socioeconomic demographic in your lifetime, if you've traveled, if you've experienced it yourself can be helpful. And one of the things when I think about resilience is, you know, being okay with having little and what would that mean, you know, and having to think about your food and thinking about having to sort of ration how you get food and how you save it and how many times you go to the grocery store. So all of these things that we just don't think about and how people went, were freaking out in terms of like masks and hand sanitizer and like, cause those had run out and then it was the toilet paper, you know, and 
So I'm just fascinated by our behavior. How do we act in times of stress? Is our brain on fire, you know, in the sense that like our stress hormones, cortisol, it's running at such high level that our, it's impairing on some level our ability to executive functioning, decision-making, and sort of thinking rationally. So, you know, it's just the who story, going back to your question, it's not told, you know, the most vulnerable people in our, our population who don't have the luxury to social distance. They're living in close quarters. They might be living in a one-bedroom apartment. They might be living eight or 10 people together. They have to go out. They have to take public transportation in New York City or wherever it's densely populated. So they're very much dependent on having to be out in the world, you know, and I was reading something about, I think it was a Walmart that they said like 80 employees tested positive. So I'm just, I feel bad, you know, for people on so many levels. And like you had also said about how we're thinking about ourselves that like, you know, there's a way to flip this on its head to say, how can we think about, and people are thinking about other people. Another segment of the population that I'm worried about are the, the healthcare workers and their frontline and their mental health you know, at least in the beginning, I think there is, we're starting to develop more appreciation now with the headlines, with recent suicides. But that's a whole other topic in terms of mental health and specifically in people who are supposed to be the toughest, who are supposed to be self-sacrificial. And that really bothers me, you know, that you go into this profession and you're really expected to to not matter or that your needs don't matter to the point where you are expected, you know, to put everything on the line. And while you know, I do, I think an important part of it is do it on the line as long as you don't hurt yourself. You know, when we talk about the Hippocratic Oath and do no harm, you should also include yourself in that, you know, and not having access to masks or PPE. You know, it was really hard getting messages from colleagues who test positive and who still had to go to work. And, you know, their hospitals were telling them, don't post on social media. We don't want you talking to reporters. So here you are, you're suffering, you're exposed to patients all day, you're seeing them die half time, you know, some of the time it's in, they might even be dead on the, on, you know, in the emergency room and seeing that trauma and then seeing the trauma of your colleagues getting ill and being told to just keep showing up and fighting and this is a war and, you know, having to neglect yourself. So I think there's a lot of neglected and, you know, there was a New Yorker article that came today and there were four categories of people and one of them Robin Wright wrote this article. She had interviewed me a few weeks ago on loneliness during the COVID. And she talked about one of the categories sort of being the forgotten people. So, and Native Americans and like a variety of other people came into this. But I think there are a lot of forgotten people and not just sort of socioeconomic, but from a mental health point of view. It's so critical because what I'm hearing you say is that we need to be telling stories. And it doesn't have to be just in the news media. Obviously, when, when us, the consumers, just see stories, it is through the news media. But like, what is the impact then on the population whose stories aren't being told? I think you and I in the past have talked about the importance of being seen, mm -hmm. you know, too human, like we need to matter as people. So what happens when people feel like they don't matter or their stories aren't being heard? You know, it's the most painful thing in the world to not matter. And it doesn't matter if you're six or 60 or 80 or 90, like that need, it's such a desperate hunger for all of us to be seen, to be validated. And it's so painful to feel as if your voice doesn't matter. And, you know, it doesn't even matter how much money you have, how much, how many degrees you have, you know, like the, one of the things that I kept hearing from my medical colleagues over and over again is like, we are expected to just keep going and our needs don't matter. And they're looking at it as sort of, we're like foot soldiers. And when this round, you know, of soldiers dies, we'll just get another one, you know, that we're dispensable. And so, 
And I think employees in every line of business are feeling that way if they're being required to work and are not, you know, being given the proper provisions. You know, there was a company that was mentioned that was, they were calling them essential workers, but they were really just sort of packaging jewelry and, you know, I don't know, cosmetic items. And they were talking about their lunchroom where they were kind of stuffed in rooms and sitting shoulder to shoulder during this time. So, and getting paid $9 an hour. So not feeling like you don't matter has severe consequences and it puts you more at risk for trauma. And the sad thing is that some of these folks, I, one of the hats that I used to wear was I used to be the medical director of the 9-11 mental health program at NYU. And we saw a lot of cleanup rescue recovery workers who were from Latin America. And a lot of them were women and a lot of them had previous history of trauma, sexual abuse, specifically domestic violence in the household. And where there were sort of like political issues and they had to flee for that. Some of them were undocumented. And so they didn't get the help that they need. They didn't have access to resources. The program where I was working was a very interesting program because it was a free program funded by the city. It was at NYU. It was one of, considered one of the three centers of excellence for 9-11 care. And they provided free treatment. And it was a multidisciplinary treatment program. So everybody would come in for, quote, like a full day of battery of tests, physical and mental health screening was required as part of that. So, you know, just keeping in mind that a lot of people, when you're not heard or not seen, you're putting yourself at risk for trauma. And these people might already have a previous history of trauma, a variety of things. And the best way to address it is, you know, number one, mental health screening is one way. Obviously, like you're going to have to change the psychosocial setting and the environment. And really what we're getting at and what we're seeing are all of the holes in our system in terms of education, not having universal health care. Like when I'm just thinking about Canada or like, I love the fact that everybody's just getting checks. And I mean, maybe it's not as simple as I'm making it sound, but like I've been, you know, in communication and been on panels with folks who are getting their basic needs met. And you talk about basic needs and food and shelter and safety and, you know, whatever it might be like, and part of your safety, psychological safety of knowing that you're being provided for. So it's really showing, it's really exposing and highlighting compared to other nations. How is it that we're sort of like, number one, you know, we talking about how when the United States is like number one or two in the GDP and one of the wealthiest, if not the wealthiest nation, you know, US and China, like in the whole world. And yet when it comes to healthcare and even happiness. You know, United States, we met at the Happy World Happiness Conference. Yes. And uh, it ranks number 14. So we're clearly missing the boat on so many important things. And healthcare is one of them. Not having certain basic social programs that people can fall back on if they're not able to go to work. So again, you know, I'm a psychiatrist, so I'm looking at the lens, but obviously you can't ignore all of the layers in which a person's life exists. And of course, like when we talk about trauma and this mental health distress, you're looking at what are the factors that worsen or exacerbate that trauma, and it's going to be unemployment on top and financial losses. And we saw that specifically with 9-11 was that people who had obviously history of trauma or history of mental health problems, anxiety and depression to begin with. And then if you added in stress of immigration, if they were undocumented on top of financial losses on an unemployment and fear and uncertainty all of this increased your risk. And what are some of the things that there was a study that was talking about quarantine, I think it was with the equine flu in Australia. And they were saying one of the things that helped in trauma is being given access to information that is clear, and that is accurate and scientific and credible, you know, so there's things that we can do from a mental health perspective to maybe mitigate some of this, I think we're still going to see for years to come, you know, up until now, at least for most Americans, when we think about what happened in the last 20 years, like, 
there was life pre 9-11 and post. This is going to be pre coronavirus and post like everything, the way we relate, you know, never being able to handshake somebody again in a way, you know, so everything that we do until there's a vaccine, hopefully until there's treatment, at least for the temporary, I mean, life will always change. It'll always be different. We'll always be mindful of things just the way when we travel, you know, not only if you look, if you look at your ticket, you'll see that there's like a 9-11 fee when we're paying. I mean, you know all about that, Sarah, about flying, you know, impacts your life. I'd love to hear about that in some conversation. But, you know, there's going to be a life before and a life after and a world, a way we think about things before and after. You know, you talked a lot about the systemic ways to make people being seen. But, you know, Misash and I hosted a roundtable conversation a few weeks ago with a group of women. And, and in it, at the end, we were talking about how so many people are wanting to, do individuals mm-hmm. are looking to help by donating warm food to the doctors and the medical workers on the front line. And one of their responses was, what about all the people who literally don't have food, who need more food from the food bank? And, you know, what are other things that, aside from also really looking for people who are truly having all their safety nets pulled out from underneath them, who don't have food, who don't have shelter, who don't have people, what is the best way that an average person can help another person feel seen? You know, I mean, so you're talking about like, so offering, you're saying that there are ways in which that that you can offer sort of material resources, right? Material or emotional. I don't know. I mean, what are you seeing works? Yeah. So asking people how they are, you know, and making it more than a checkbox conversation. You know, I had recently posted something on my social media and it was called mental health check-in. And it was this idea of asking people routinely. And I'm a big believer in prevention and asking the questions early on before the problems happen. And that's really not a part of our sort of Western allopathic medicine. And people have laughed at me. They're like, who would ever see a psychiatrist for preventative mental health? And I understand that. But like you do go to your primary care visit and, you know, somebody had written back that, you know, and I had said like, it would be great even like even within the fold of the primary care system, because that was what was so great about the program that I loved so much about working there with the 9-11 mental health program is that you were given a mental health screening as part of your visit for that day. So they were checking your pulmonary function test and they were checking like lung and asthma and breathing and you would see the GI doctor, but it was kind of slipped in there as like no big deal. Of course, we would ask you mental health questions. So normalizing and mainstream. But one of the responses that I got to that post was, you know, there's a way to ask a question in which you actually want an answer. And then there's a way to ask it in which you like actually deter people from answering it. So asking somebody how you are with really, I remember you, isn't your Ted, one of your your talks? (laughs) Yes. I was just, I was totally nodding vigorously. I'm like, that's, I agree. I like that this is your answer so far. (laughs) (laughs) That, that you ask people questions in which you invite, you know, and is it checking? And I think of it as, are you checking a box or are you opening a door? And that's the difference because opening a door is warm, empathic, it's open-ended and you receive the information, you actually give a crap. Like there's a huge difference. Like, so this person was telling me that I go to the doctor and it's really not, you know, it might be another person on the team who asks the question just the way they might come in and check your temperature or blood pressure. And they'll be like, no problems, right? Mental health. And then if you do say something, they're not really equipped or they don't know how to sensitively frame that answer or say that I, you know, or they should be taught certain I think basic skills on how to interact and ask the mental health questions and then give sort of sensitive feedback. So to answer your question, asking somebody how they are and holding space, you know, uh, for their answer. And then, you know, like, I like the fact that there's more and more like mental health first aid training. And I kind of feel like all people like should be trained not only in basics of like CPR, like everybody walking around, it shouldn't just be a health professional or a lifeguard, but we should all have basic mental health first aid training how to respond to somebody who says, 
I'm not doing well. And another person also responded to another feed, a post that I had similar thing, but they had said that students were asked how they were doing. And the students, one student responded, you know, in high school, like, I'm not doing well. And then they were like, okay, well, you should go talk to somebody. But they were like, who? I have no idea. Like, they didn't know who the point person was. So I feel like schools should also either have peer counselors. And like, one of the programs I had been in a, um, in last October, CBS this morning had a Stop the Stigma campaign. And it was a big month-long project. And I was part of it. And we interviewed Lady Gaga's mom, Cynthia Germanata, about Born This Way Foundation. And they were trying to go across the country and get more schools to sign up for teen mental health first aid. And I love the idea of there being kids in your school. So if you're not feeling comfortable going to the guidance counselor or somebody, quote, of authority, that there are responsible kids that are very sensitive that are capable of creating space for one another and then taking that information to a counselor and then having connections in the community to where to refer people to if the school isn't equipped to handle it. So, I mean, there are, again, big systemic changes, but the little thing that you can do is check up on somebody, show that you're interested, create space. And so the way to do that is to make sure that your vessel is full, right? So we can't offer energy from our tank if we're depleted. So if you know you have to call a family member, you know, people ask me this all the time, like, Right now, you know, I'm being inundated and I don't want to talk to negative family members and I don't want too much negative news. So if you know that there's a family member that you're concerned about and you need to check up on them, take care of yourself first, you know, get in a nap, like be well rested and say to yourself, okay, I'm going to schedule this call at this time of day because I know that like I'll have my tank full. And, you know, and then if you don't feel like you have to be everything for that person, you can offer them resources, you know, especially when it comes to family, it's very hard for family members to to sort of advise and guide sometimes in that capacity. And that's where the professional layer is, you know, and helping them find somebody, therapist that would work with them. And, you know, and if the first referral doesn't work, then keep going. I mean, I love that for people who are close to us. Yeah. And I was also reminded, like, we could probably do the same thing for the people who are at the checkout counter when we're buying our groceries or like the bus driver, like whoever we're coming into contact with, it probably helps because to talk about like, people who are missed in the day-to-day -day hustle and bustle of our lives. Yes. And, you know, I had done a, a clip on loneliness. And one of the interesting things that I wanted to share that came up in that is the importance of the micro conversation, right? Of the little interactions that you're going to have with people like the barista, or like you said, the checkout counter or the bus driver. So we're losing or we've missed some of those opportunities, right? So like we might be scheduling if we are face-to-face -face, Zoom calls or whatever with family members, but there are some people who prefer their own company or may not have other people, but they don't realize that so much of their day might have had inherently built into it, these connections. So to still make that effort, you're right. And I love that. And, you know, I had a really sweet moment with this grocery store clerk checkout when I went to get groceries. And this was the first day in New York state where they made it required that you had to have masks. I didn't have masks and I had to wear like a scarf around my face. And she, I asked her, are you selling it? You know, are you selling masks here? And she's like, we don't. And she's like, you can go wherever. But I knew that they were going to be limited in supply wherever I went. And I came back after I got my groceries thinking that she had forgotten me because she was in a group of women talking. And then when I came back, she actually went someplace and got me two masks. And I was like, what? what, what? And she was like, no, this is for you. Like, I want to give this to you. And that was so random. And I ended up in having, putting my mask on, having a conversation with her while socially distancing. And I asked her about how does she come to work in her life? And she was from Jamaica. And she was telling me that they're under lockdown there. And 
but she drives an hour to work each day. And I was like, what do you do on your way to work? And she's like, I listen to like gospel music. And it was just like, really, I, I felt very touched by her kindness and wanted to connect with her on a deeper level. But, you know, those kind of conversations, yes. And she was glad to, both happy to talk to each other. I think on some level, we're starved for human connection. So the point is that human connection can come anywhere. It doesn't have to be pre-planned. And I was very grateful for her generosity and kindness. And I just think that there's so many opportunities like that to connect with people. I mean, one of the things you did say, though, was make sure your tank is full. I mean, Sasha and I had gone through it. When all this started, I had admittedly a harder time dealing with things mentally. Mm -hmm. And there seemed to be this disconnect in my mind about, you know, when we started this conversation with you, Sue, we were talking about like, you know, I'm so grateful because I have, you know, warm water, let alone water, right? And then I have a fridge full of food. And I like, I know intellectually, I have it so good. And yet emotionally, I mm -hmm. was jacked up for a little while. And so I was trying to figure out a like, how do you reconcile those two things when you still you know, you're okay, but you don't feel okay. Yes. in order to truly feel like you can show up and still be there for other people without being some weird version of yourself or feeling like you can't like, authentically help others. Yeah, you know, it's such a great question. And I feel like you're reading my mind, because literally just yesterday, I was saying to myself that I need to write about this because this idea that grief and gratitude can coexist. And we have to be okay with that, right? And especially if you're living in a position to be privileged enough to have access to these things. And people say this to me all the time when I'm treating them for depression. They're like, how can I possibly be depressed? And I'm so mad at myself because I actually have these things. And what the hell is wrong with me? And there's a great book that I love. It's called The Mindful Way Through Depression. And it talks about in like how we get into these ruminations and how rumination in general, it's really important to know that in depression, rumination is what's going to kill you. And I don't mean physically kill you. I don't mean like as in a suicide, but I just mean like it's going to take you down this deep, dark path. It's the rumination. So the first thought is they give a story of a, of a person walking around a lake and it's a beautiful day. And they're like, oh, it's such a beautiful day. And like, oh, but how come I'm not enjoying it? What's wrong with me? I must be depressed. What's wrong with me? Why am I depressed? But I actually have a good life. And then they feel guilty about it. And so what's interesting is in depression, it affects your lens about everything, about the way that you view the world. And so guilt and rumination is a part of depression. So if you're not feeling, and I'm not talking about you, but in general, when a person beats themselves up, that's called like metacognition. The first thing is the cognition, which is I'm depressed or I feel low or my, I'm sad or whatever, I'm depressed. And then the metacognition is the thought about the thought or the worry about the thought, worry about being worried. So it's okay to be depressed, even if all of your needs are met. And some of it is the stress from the outside world and what we would call like, you know, we're having issues with adjusting, which a lot of people had. So you're not alone there. And then if a person were to be depressed, despite having access to everything, then that speaks to sort of like, you know, medical, biological, whatever, like circumstances. So depression doesn't have to be justified, you know, like you don't have to be able to look in your life in general, you know, or anxiety or worry. It, sometimes it does help. And so, you know, to answer your question about what does the person do in that situation, being able to identify triggers are very helpful. And this idea of emotional granularity, labeling emotions, having awareness, being able to give it language is super, super, super helpful. Because if you can notice what the precipitant is, sometimes you can change the precipitant. Sometimes you can change your reaction to it, your relationship to it. And I think sometimes it also just takes time, you know, that we were in different phases of all of this. There was a sudden and immediate loss of like, holy shit, and then we don't know where this is going. And then at sometimes it sets in, maybe it normalizes, 
Maybe you become immune, maybe you become numb, maybe you become desensitized. Everybody will deal with it differently. But it is hard. And what we were expected to do for this long, even if you're not sick, you know, even if you're not, or you or somebody that you love is not affected or physically impacted, you still are impacted. So don't minimize what you're going through because it's not as difficult as what somebody else is going through. I love that idea of just making sure you know yourself or, or give yourself grace. Mm-hmm allow for it to just be, and you know, for example, for me, Misasha had pointed out this exercise the other day, and I realized one of the things that was shaken for me was this sense of security is one of my top three values. And it means different things, like when I really break it down. But if you just take that you know, word, however you understand security, I was like, oh, mm -hmm. I get it. My whole freaking world of security was rocked. Now, like as soon as you label it, I do find it's easier mm -hmm. to then see it and let it go and not beat yourself up over it. So I almost feel like what you're saying is advocating this time to have a little introspection if you're not, if you're feeling that dissonance, if you're feeling like you're beating yourself up, just take that time to explore what might be going on because it's trying to tell you something. Yes. And then, you know, I think it's so great that you know, and what are your other two top values? Friendship and pleasure. And for you, Natasha? I didn't do the same exercise that Sarah did. <laughs> so. Can you send me that exercise? I love it. Yes. Yeah. But I had sent Sarah this sort of work thing about understanding emotions in this mm -hmm. time period, because for me, I've had a lot of ups and downs, like some days I'll be great and I can handle my legal work and I can handle, you know, the boys schooling and all sorts of stuff. And I'm like cooking dinner and the, the next day I'm like, I just miss things and mm -hmm. I feel low. And so for mm -hmm. me, part of the exercise was really, it was sort of naming the things that you miss or that mm -hmm. you lost and then mm -hmm. feeling associated with that lot, mm -hmm. whether it's grief or whether it's sadness or anxiety or anger, you know, just to be able to name feelings. And I never sat and done that. So mm -hmm. it was very powerful for me in that sense to mm -hmm. go through all these feelings because mm -hmm. I sort of go pick one feeling and stop there a lot of times mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. understand the complexity in that, you know, this is not a linear progression. And for everyone, we have these, yes. you know, this sort of wave feeling and emotion. Mm -hmm. Grand, that's so beautiful what you said that in terms of wave. And I think that's so key because what happens is we get locked in. Like it, what's so hard is like when we're feeling low that sometimes it's, we just think like, oh my God, when is this feeling going to go away? Right. But like, we don't realize that five minutes later you can see a meme or a funny joke or a text message sent by a friend and literally like your mood will be lifted so that the moods, if we don't get attached to them and look at them as sort of transient states and also remind ourselves that like, oh, I remember I was feeling really crappy you know, two days ago, but my mood has shifted since. So if I'm feeling crappy now, like it's likely that it can pick up again. But I love the exercise of like naming your values because then you're like, oh, I'm somebody who this is really important to me. And that's why, you know, like I love people. I love freedom. I love to be able to travel. And at the same time, I also like certainty. So all of that is at odds right now. Like I miss the things that I miss is being able to see people, you know, and be able to, to freely circulate in society. And one of the greatest parts about, you know, being in a city is that you're constantly, what I loved about being in New York is like, you're, you feel like you're constantly traveling, even if you're not, because you can sit in a cafe and you'll be surrounded by people from different parts of the world. And then I'm missing, you know, as all these Facebook memories come up or even on my phone a year ago, you were here, you were there. And I love that, you know, and I miss that, you know, I think it's the energy that just being in a room of other people, even if you're not talking to them, even if you don't know them, there's just an energy and a togetherness and a connectedness, you know, and, uh, and we're social creatures. So to take that away is very odd, you know, and I think back, and this is not at all a parallel, but 
And just think about the importance in terms of the child's brain and development that when you thought about those ex- sort of experiments in the orphanages in the 1940s of these orphans like being left and even though that their food and comfort and all these things were provided, they had developmental delays or some of them even died. But like, luckily, we're not in that situation. But it just points to you that even on a sort of nervous system, biological level, you know, we need stimulation and we need love. And these needs are just as important as you know, sort of economic housing, all of that. I knew there was a reason beyond just getting away from my family, why I liked going to the grocery store. It's like the highlight of my freaking week. If I get to go and I'm like, there's other humans. Totally. And you know what, what this reminded me a little bit of, even though it's not quite the same situation is like I had delivered both my kids in the winter and there's not a lot. It was very cold. There was not a lot happening. There was not a lot to go to. In the first eight week period, you're not really socializing. You're not really supposed to or be going to that many mommy and me group or you're supposed to keep your distance and whatever. And I remember the highlight was like going to CVS down the street, you know, in Manhattan. I was like, oh, my God, I could see people. And even now the grocery store and the pharmacy, like where else are you going to go? You like to for signs of life. Totally. Yeah. In a way, it's kind of like if you're lucky and privileged enough to be healthy enough to get outside of the house and to be able to go to a grocery store, that is the absolute highlight of my week. If and when I'm like, oh, we need something. Okay. Let me go put my mask on and <laughs> I'll take the hit. I'll go. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hand up. I got it. One of the things we talked about though, going back to the new normal idea and it just occurred to me as we were talking to ask this question, but, you know, we talked about the things that as we learn about ourselves better through this period, and you realize there's certain things that are going to go back to normal, but other things that won't go back. And a friend of mine from college had written this piece that Misasha and I've been talking a lot about, you know, the gaslighting, he wrote it on Medium, and it went viral. But it was this idea of, you know, be careful, because all the companies are going to come out and start marketing really hard, which they need to do to, you know, make money, but they're going to try to address our discomfort and they're going to try to sell us stuff that make us feel comfortable. And yet if we're realizing that there's some big picture structural issues, or if, if we're finding, you know, with the country that we can change by voting or doing different things with our lives, how do, and I didn't mean just presidential election, I promise when I said voting, (laughs) but you know, with bigger picture structural things, And how do we not forget, Mm -hmm. basically, what we're realizing is important to us right now, the things that we want to do? And, you know, I'm just afraid it's all going to get shoved under the rug whenever a vaccine happens, you know, the same way. But yet I know, you know, after 9-11, New York City, I think, correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. But there was like a substantial decrease in new diagnoses for depression for the first two years after 9-11. And I feel like, you know, some hardships give us a sense of purpose. Mm-hmm. And this might be one of those things that if we can get our heads around it, it is giving us a sense of purpose. How do we not forget? How do we yeah. use this positively mm-hmm. as opposed to letting corporations or whoever just make us forget about it all? I mean, you know, it's like when you say the corporations making us forget about it, you mean like marketing hard to our insecurities and fears so that like that aspect or? <laughs> yeah, that would be one. Like, hey, you feel uncomfortable. You need a new pair of shoes to make your feet feel more comfortable or like you know, all the quarantine, you know, time away from the hair salon making you feel bad. Take this at home hair salon kit. Yeah. Which I get. I mean, I'm all for covering your grays sometimes, but. Yeah. But, you know, like, I think what you're bringing up is also like a bigger question is like how many people really want to face their emotions in general? Like, I think most of the time what I see is that like distraction and escapism, like, why do you think social media is so powerful, right? Because yes, there's the connection aspect. That's only 50% of the equation. The other half of it is like not having to deal with real life. And I feel like, 
that I think the human nature is not wanting to confront or sit in distress for too long. And so I think these businesses will have access because we want to move on. We want to forget. I mean, if you look at pictures of just yesterday in New York City, like there's a picture from in one of the parks, everybody's hanging out. There's no social distancing. Nobody's wearing a mask in that picture. And you're like, clearly you want to forget, you want to move on now. So people are going to want to fortunately or unfortunately have short-term memory and want to be able to move on. And people do that. I mean, that's why people numb desensitize, use off, not, I mean, obviously there's a biological medical component, but like why addiction and drinking and substances are also so, I think, luring during this time is because people don't want to remember. So what you're saying is that there's something really valuable here for us, a lesson for us to take, and we need to remember, right? Like we should hold on to this, to the positive aspect. And I'm saying that that would be awesome. And those are people who believe in sort of self-awareness, and introspection and journey, even if it's not glamorous and sexy and the answers are not what you want to hear. But I don't think, unfortunately, most people want to go that deep. And I think like when people come to therapy, you know, it's the first time. Like, And what makes people go to therapy is very interesting. Like I meet people at all stages and phases, but they've come in because something is broken. They're not coming in to talk about personal, at least, I mean, you might go to a life coach for that, but like for the most part, people don't go to a psychiatrist to talk about growth. But they come in because something is broken. But through that, for me, that I'm somebody who really believes in not just going from dysfunction to function, but it's also going from functional to optimal. So I want to take those opportunities when you've come in and you think that everything is cracked and you, you're like, listen, I'm Humpty Dumpty. Just put me just put me back again. And I'm like, no, no, no. This is an opportunity to look far beyond just that one aspect and what else is going on in other aspects of your life. So I think that this is such an amazing and you're bringing up a really key point is like, let's make meaning out of this. Let's find the silver lining and let's not have this be a wasted opportunity, like, and not just survive. Like we began before our conversation, I asked you like, how are you doing? And I threw in the word survival and you're like, I'm doing better than that, you know? And I love that because it's all about thriving. But I think we have to just accept where we are. And if somebody's not thriving and all this memes about productivity and don't be so hard on yourself, I think like, let's just get through this. This is a very stressful time. And if you're able to like, I don't know, like, take a shower and put your clothes on, you know, like that's a win. If you got out of bed this morning, that's a win. Can you remind us about some of your top tips then that you're giving? I mean, you're all over the media, which I so love, like I said. Yes. What is it that people, what are your top tips and what do we need to know so that we are in that headspace that you were talking about? Yeah. So be compassionate to yourself, be gentle, be forgiving, be grateful for anything that you've accomplished, anything that you have, keep a journal. And I would say, write down every day the reminder. If you're listening to this podcast, there's probably more things going right in your life than wrong, right? That means you have access to technology, you might have social media, you might be free of pain, or maybe you're in some pain, physical discomfort, but you're in the headspace to want to learn. And to me, like that's really an advanced goal when you're suffering and struggling, like you're just trying to make it through the day, you, you don't have access to that part of your brain. So already things are going, you know, relatively okay. So be grateful for that aspect. Be compassionate, be forgiving, be patient, recognize that we're going through hopefully is a temporary thing. Yes, our life will not be the same, but it's never the same from day to day. This is just a bigger version of that, a much, much bigger version. Understand and accept that this is hard, that you're going to have different emotions at different times, label them. And then I talk about the four M's of mental health, which is mindfulness, 10 to 15 minutes, use a calm headspace, free YouTube app, some form of meditation. It can even be just deep breathing. It could be progressive muscle relaxation. 
It could be a body scan. I have talked about mindfulness-based stress reduction programs online. So something for your mind, mindfulness. Mastery, do something that makes you feel good, engaged, powerfully, creative, flow state. You don't have to actually be good. You don't have to be professional. You don't have to post about it. But just something, cooking, gardening, anything, drawing uh, that makes you feel like in in a state of flow or just creativity. Meaningful engagement, connecting to other people, what we're doing right now, having a great conversation, checking in on people that you love, offering help if you're able to, altruism, social support. We know that that helps a lot of people get through difficult times, feeling needed, feeling wanted, giving back. And then movement, whatever exercise, walking around 10 or 15 minutes, any kind of strength training, yoga, tai chi, stretching, really important to not neglect your body at this time because it's very easy to do that. That's awesome. Thank you. I'm already like, okay, I'm going to make a meme about that for the show and I'm going to stick it up also on my wall behind me. (laughs) I love it. Sarah's got some amazing quotes that I get to see all behind (laughs) her. And I hope that you share some of this on your social media. I'd love to see all of them. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny. I let my kids come in here sometimes and we just talk about, they pick a quote is their favorite and they tell me why. And I'm like, oh, it's a good conversation starter. Yeah. (laughs) Any other questions, Misasha or Sue, any topics that we want to ask before we close out? You know, I'm like taking notes over here, which I pretty much never do during our podcast. So I'm, I have like books that I need to like things that I need to do. So this has been so amazing. This is exactly the conversation I needed to have today that I didn't realize I needed to have today. But yeah, that's awesome. By the way, that total side note, that mindful way through depression, Tal Ben-Shahar had told me about that when I was helping teach positive psych at Harvard with him like forever ago. So I've had it on my bookshelf and I've actually never read it. So I was looking, I'm like, where is it? Cause I knew oh, that's awesome. I needed to have it. I'm so glad. <laughs> I just wrote it down. Yeah. Oh, good. You know, the Mindful Way Through Depression comes with a CD in the back that has the body scan. And that's something that I do several times a week. And that really helps me. And anything by John Kabat-Zinn, I'm a big fan. Oh, he's awesome. Yeah. And all of his talks are amazing. So that the book, wherever you go, there you are, I would recommend to everybody. I got it as a gift. I think I was 16, moving to Manhattan, starting college and friend gave to me. And literally, I don't know, it's been a million years and it's still something I keep at my nightstand. It's a book that you can read two pages at a time. And it just has so much wisdom in it that I would highly recommend that book to to everybody. That's fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. If you like what you've heard or you like what you're hearing, please take a second to rate and review us on whatever podcast platform you use. It would mean a lot. That helps us spread the word about our podcast. Or if you're into direct sharing, tell a friend or five about us. And if you want any more information, go to our website at dearwhitewomen.com. We've got all the past episodes, email signups, and all our social media links from there so you can stay connected and get all the bonus material that we offer.